folks, I know talking about mental health is hard. And it's even harder talking about it with our colleagues. That's why I am grateful that at Accenture, we are a leading voice in breaking down the stigma around mental health by encouraging open, honest conversations and providing the support that is needed for our people. So as we close out the month of May, which as you know, is focused on mental health, I don't want us to just stop there. I hope the importance of this is carried along with us for the rest of the year. And that's why as part of this next episode of Spotlight on Americas, I'd like to end Mental Health Month with something inspiring, something innovative. Joining me today for this open, honest conversation are Tom Lunavos, who leads Accenture Ventures, and Aaron Ghani, CEO of Behaviour. Tom, if you can please do the honors of introducing our guest. Uh, Shivani, thank you so much. And it, 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 I think you said it so well, you know, that this is not a month in a year, it should be 12 months in a year. And I think COVID was the uh, forcing function to make us all recognize anxiety, depression, all kinds of different issues. And, and then how do we deal with that as society? So what we're going to uh, talk about today with Aaron and his company behavior that we invested in uh, recently uh, is is that topic. And in, on one hand, we're going to talk about the business elements, and there's mo lots of reasons why Rich Berzanzel and the digital health team wanted to move into the behavioral science area. So there's a business element, but there's a very human element here. We all suffer from different elements of anxiety and de depression, whether we are going through a COVID or we're aging, our aging community as well. And, and I represent that community a little bit on, on this call. But uh, I'm really thrilled to, to have Aaron Gogni, who uh, is the uh, CEO and founder of Behavior, uh, with us today. Welcome, Aaron. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you, Tom. And thank you, Shivani. It's great to be with you. Yeah, this was, a, um, you know, uh, Aaron, you, your company got on our radar in multiple ways because it's such an intersection of three very important areas for us. One, behavioral health for Rich Berzanzel and the digital health team throughout our global digital health team. Uh, he, he highlighted this as an area of importance, an area of priority. But the other aspect of the melding together several different technologies, really, when you think about it, you, you, what you're doing with XR and VR and the metaverse and using that as a, a platform uh, to live, deliver immersive engagements or experiences. And also the data element of it is really particularly interesting. I want to get into a little bit more. But for all of you, uh, first meeting Aaron here, uh, Aaron has a long history uh, in, in health, uh, but in innovation, in technology, in operations, uh, most recently with Humana, where he, where he led innovation at Humana for many years. I'm probably the most, I'm going to jump into the, the or, or origination story of, because I'm just very captive to this being a former founder. What caused you to jump out of Humana, jump out of the, the corporate world after all those years to, to pick this? What problem were you trying to solve? when you were in 2016 starting uh, Behavior? Well, there's there's a couple of elements to that story. The really short version is I, I've, I've been a technologist my whole life. Uh, I was in financial services for many years and then about a dozen years in healthcare with Humana uh, in, in a variety of innovation roles and was the 
the CTO there in my last couple of years, which in that company meant advancement of technology. And so um, it was a great company, a great role. I was delighted to be there, wonderful colleagues. There's one problem. I had wanted my own business essentially my whole life. And, and there, this was this um, desire that I had that wasn't going away. And so after years of sort of dreaming and scheming, I started to get serious. Like, you know, we get one go around as far as we know. I'm about halfway through this life and I need to go after this or, or I may you know, die unhappy in that regard. So there was this moment of, OK, it's time to go. I'm going to create a new company. And I spent about a year thinking about, well, what problem do we want to tackle? And at Humana at the time, this was sort of through 2014, 15, 16, we were getting increasingly focused on mental and behavioral health. Uh, not just as sort of a siloed set of needs, but recognizing that they're like the meta comorbidity that, you know, they're bad enough on their own. But when you intersect people living with one or more chronic diseases and they're dealing with mental and behavioral health challenges, these people go from already the worst off and the most expensive in the system to two to three times even worse. Right. So lots of pain and suffering, lots of value to be you know, captured if we can address that. So at Humana, we were starting to focus on that problem more and more. And then in my personal life, I have experienced directly in my immediate family and extended family, the impact that mental and behavioral health challenges have, you know, on the on the individuals living with it and on, on family members. So it's personally meaningful from a business perspective. I sort of learned from my Humana colleagues, wow, this is a huge problem. There's no way we're gonna close this gap with human clinicians. That's an opportunity for digital and being a lifelong tech guy, I thought, OK, well, digital needs to go solve that problem, which is very meaningful and very valuable. Yeah, that's, it's always interesting. It's always got to have a personal side of it, doesn't it? Just for the get that passion going and, and, and such that because you need it to get through the commitment side. OK, your category, uh, you know, digital therapeutics is a high growth area um, for around the world, certainly within a, a center. Because we have a, a wide audience here, give us a little understanding of how you look at digital therapeutics. What are they? Sure. So, so generally, they're within this broader category of, of digital health, right? And there, there are various frameworks. There's not one universally agreed framework. But in general, you can summarize them by saying there's a recognition that we have everything from sort of digital wellness tools, kind of useful adjuncts to our day, up through devices and things that can be very diagnostic or prognostic in nature up through something that at least in most frameworks when you go all the way to the top end of sort of power to change health and evidence base sort of scientific grounding and evidence that this thing is really safe and effective generally the top end of that scale is thought of as digital therapeutics right so it's not it's not just enabling people to engage in their health differently or connect humans differently or support the work of human clinicians. This is actually the digital thing is providing the therapy, right? And so when you get there, it, it creates a really big moment in, in how technology is affecting healthcare. Most of what we've done with tech and healthcare is that enabling stuff, which is good and useful and valuable, but it's data and analytics and connectivity and telehealth and care coordination and so on and those things are all good when you get to digital therapeutics suddenly you can start swapping other therapies most importantly human time for something that you can do with digital and digital as we know scales exponentially almost without limits while the marginal costs just head down 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 towards zero 
and so that is super exciting when you think about the huge unmet need. You know, there's lots of statistics, something like a billion people globally are dealing with mental and behavioral challenges, about a quarter of them dealing with serious mental illness. And forget in most of the world, even in the US, we have nothing like the, the, the amount of clinicians that we need to, to get all those people help. Depending on the stat you look at, something like two thirds of those people get no help at all. And many people that get help, it tends to be inadequate, quite inconsistent, because we humans, we're not all that consistent, right? And so when you can swap digital in there, suddenly you have this opportunity to close the scalability gap and you can transform the economics of care in a, in a really material way. So that is a big, big moment. If you think about how digital can transform the means of production in industry, well, this isn't just about doing it better and making more money. This is about reaching all those people that aren't getting any help. And that's predominantly because there's not enough providers out there or healthcare uh, clinicians out there to be able to do it. Is that right? That's right. I mean, again, many stats, one, like from the American Psychological Association, they they recently uh, put out a, a measure saying about 65% of psychologists in the U.S. don't even have capacity to put people on wait lists. <laughs> like their wait lists are full, right? <laughs> so, so back to this intersection of chronic disease and mental and behavioral, you have all these people that need help. You have lots of energy and, and focus from payers and providers and payviders and all of value-based care trying to keep these people healthier. When it gets to mental and behavioral, what do they do? Well, they tend to refer them out into the community where there's two-month backlogs and not enough clinicians to see people. You know, I was blown away when I first saw your technology. So let's get into behavior. Let, let's get into to what exactly behavior does and, and how you're doing it. Because when you think of digital therapeutics, you know, to, for me, uh, it was, you know, the watch, my, 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 it, it was uh, an app, uh, it was smartphones. It, your, your approach is quite a bit different. Tell us a little bit more about behavior. Sure. So, uh, so we're, first of all, we're in this broader category of digital therapeutics, right? Which is in the broader, even broader category of digital health. Most digital therapeutic companies um, are building applications on smartphones. Good, obvious reasons to do that. You know, we know about the ubiquity of smartphones. Almost everyone has one. Um, and that makes a lot of sense in many ways. However, there are certain things that when you go from this flat 2D experience into this very different medium of virtual reality, a lot of things are different. So first of all, well, what, what's so important? What do we mean? Well, with VR, um, we think of it as a headset, but what's really happening is we're replacing the sensory input of primarily visual and auditory. There are, there are others, you know, there's innovations in haptics and olfaction and other things, but mostly it's vision and auditory, which is most of what our brain pays attention to anyway in terms of sensory input when we when we replace that sensory input stream it's fundamentally different than anything on a 2d screen whether it's a smartphone your laptop big screen tv imax theater it doesn't matter all those things you're not it's not happening to you you're basically watching it or looking at it with vr it's an experience it's happening to you and it is literally the more primitive parts of our brain that we share with the animal kingdom where we are on a pre-conscious level in engaging that threat detection and response circuitry that's always going on that keeps us alive you know sort of fight or flight response you know if they're startle response those kinds of things the point being it's largely involuntary so we're activating this part of the brain that is really responsible for triggering physiological and emotional responses to our surroundings and circumstances 
For that reason, it's really powerful for things like exposure therapy. So putting people into the presence of threat, whatever threat means to them, right? It could be could be trauma, PTSD patients who want to go back into a scenario that was traumatic for them. You're deliberately arousing that physiological and emotional response so that they can work through it. And then cognitive behavioral therapy can do its thing with challenging those assumptions and beliefs about your ability to deal with it and so on. It's called um, inhibitory learning. But anyway, so exposure therapy, one really powerful use case. Another is movement. So in VR, we're in this three-dimensional virtual space and we can gamify motivated movement and exercise. It's one of the reasons fitness is really, really popular in VR. You know, meta executives right. tell us how it's, they're, yeah. they're shocked how popular it is. So those two things, when you're dealing with fear and pain, really, really powerfully done in this medium of VR. Yes. Yeah. Go ahead, yeah. Shafani. Yeah, Aaron, as you uh, talk about this, right, like I was fascinated to see some of the research around this that was done in 2022 specifically that actually concluded that the whole concept of VR therapy, it has reported success rates of like 66 to 90 percent, especially for those with PTSD uh, and, and, and when it's actually used in conjunction with CBT, right? Uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. And as you mentioned, VR therapy, you know, it's not just for PTSD, it's for phobias, for depression, for anxiety. And it's also been proven for pain relief in place of pain medications. I mean, that's so powerful. And I loved your use cases, but maybe what's like a, a favorite uh, client story of yours that you would like to highlight probably um, to everybody? Sure, I'll give you a couple. Um, you know, one, one thing I'll just mention before I go on, we, we tell people a lot, there are certain things that when you do them in VR, they're next level powerful for the reasons we discussed. There's a whole bunch of stuff today you shouldn't bother doing in VR because it's complicated and expensive. It's just way easier to do it on a smartphone or a web page or what have you, right? Interestingly, with AI, that is rapidly changing, by the way. Generative AI is dramatically changing our ability to create three-dimensional content and worlds. And so some of these innovation threads, you know, they converge and they and they compound each other. So patient stories, two, two examples. So one of our products is called Game Change. Uh, this is work that came out of Dr. Daniel Freeman's uh, lab at Oxford University. Dr. Freeman is a, is a global expert in psychosis and paranoia and schizophrenia. So Daniel and his team uh, proved out the use of VR for uh, addressing agoraphobic avoidance in patients. It's actually quite transdiagnostic. It's useful across a, a range of conditions, um, but in serious mental illness. So think schizophrenia, psychosis, PTSD, bipolar, other things. Many of those patients, they deal with, you could sort of call it a, a fear of the world, right? They're like, they, they withdraw. There's a lot of social avoidance. It's not social anxiety. It's not like fear of presenting to a group or going to a party. It's like, I don't want to go out of my home because that guy is out to get me or he's looking at me funny. Like it's, it's, it's real, it's deep and it's really, really disruptive on people's lives, keeps them from jobs, keeps them from family, keeps them out of primary care, et cetera. So we've got patient stories uh, with people talking about how game change, this exposure therapy, this guided progression through these exposures absolutely changed their life. And, and I, one patient named Tom talking about how he could finally go visit his father's grave and put flowers on the grave and go do his shopping and things that 
most of us, even if we're living with challenges, we think, oh, I can do that. This is powerful stuff, right? The, and, and Daniel's work showed the more severe, the more powerful the effects of VR. So that's one. In our pain work, um, we have some, some patient testimonials. Uh, one woman, Linda, who was describing as she lived with chronic pain after many, many back surgeries and many failed attempts to deal with it for over a decade. And the only thing she could get relief from was opioids. And her, her grandkids one day told her that they didn't really want to play with her anymore because she wasn't any fun because she just laid in bed and it was just so dragging her down. So she, she thought nothing could help her. And then she got into our program and was just blown away how and there, there's a lot. There's pain education, there's calming, there's mindfulness, there's movement. So it's not one thing. But the point is, even if you can't make that pain go away, you can dramatically reduce the interference in people's lives and the the. Um, the effect, you know, the, the the dramatic impact on quality of life. So those are a couple of stories. I love that. It it, it drives home, as you were talking about some of these stories, uh, drives home to me. My sister's a psychiatrist, a practice, practicing psychiatrist. So listening to some of this stuff that you're talking about, this is uh, definitely our next dinner conversation or the next time <laughs> I'm having a glass of wine with her. I'm going to visit more on digital therapeutics and what is she doing within her practice and within her hospital uh, in order to kind of, uh, you know, uh, do, do, do things more differently and and more impactful with digital therapeutics. Love that. Well, Shawani, I'll tell you, I, so I'm a, I'm a tech guy. I'm not a clinician, um, but Dr. Risa Weisberg is our chief clinical officer. When she and I first met to see if she could join, uh, join behavior, you know, in the first 10 minutes, what we clicked on is Risa, she's a practicing clinical psychologist and researcher, but what she wanted to do before we ever met was take what she knows how to do and other clinicians know how to do digitize it so it can scale and reach millions or everybody who needs it, right? That's what's so powerful. Human clinicians have those stories of how they change lives and save lives. The problem is they don't scale very well. <laughs> and, and that's the opportunity to change that equation. You know, I, I think when I first saw your demo of the technology, the first thing that hit me was a flight simulator. It was it, it made me it was such an immersive kind of point of view that it, the concept of flight simulation is learning by doing, yeah. you know, not the other way around. And it's really changes the dynamic that points that you were making earlier that I and so let's talk a little bit about the, the technology, the 3D effect that that is brought forward through your technology. I would think, but maybe I don't know when you started the company. Was the forcing functions back in 2016 the evolution of technologies? And we're about to get a new evolution in the next few days here with Apple and Meta coming out with some new Oculus headsets or and, and different different environments. So what's how's the tech impacting your solution? Yeah, so so I mentioned how this was a midlife pivot for me, you know, to go found a company. So I, I've got plenty of gray hair and I've lived through, a, as, as you have, Tom, a bunch of S-curves of technology evolution, right? From when, you remember when personal computers were considered, I think we called them microcomputers back then, right? And they were like yes. toys, like why, how many would there be? And then, to, of course, everyone has one, right? And then mobility and then the cloud and then, you know, analytics and these, these, these waves of innovation, but they don't happen overnight. And so I had plenty of experiences of living through the early stages can be sometimes expensive, clunky, not a great experience, limited in their ability, but they do resolve over time. And you got to start early enough so that you kind of learn and know what you're doing. 
So I had I had belief and confidence in 2016. You know, two years prior, Facebook, then Facebook had acquired Oculus. That was a big moment in the industry. Even then, there was 15 years of clinical research, though, showing that VR was powerful, right? With big $30,000 goofy headsets that you can only use in a lab. So there was data. There's this moment of, you know, the Oculus Rift coming out. And ever since, we every year, year and a half, we get another step function of like, or, or more than, you know, that it's like cheaper, faster, better, right? Yep. And even as exciting as that is, I think on Monday, if Apple doesn't announce their new mixed reality headset, the entire world has been fooled. There's been so many leaks and, you know, so we're all expecting, you know, I think it's fair to say nobody does hardware and consumer experience better than Apple. So we're excited about that to see what they bring and how they advance the field. A lot of things weren't considered that relevant or cool or feasible until Apple redid them, even when they weren't first. Yeah. So it could be interesting. Well, that's Project Spotlight. You know, get into a category, get immersed into the category and ride the wave uh, of that innovation that comes along. And, and the people that enter early are the ones that lead late. And that's the that's ultimately how you go about it. How do you know, how do you engage with your clients? You know, so we have a lot of our Accenture team here listening in here. So they're they're probably thinking about how do we bring behavior into our clients uh, as we go forward? What's your suggestions? So there's, I think, um, a key thing to consider is how digital therapeutics as a category has been evolving. And so it, to the point of starting early, to, to design these evidence-based therapeutics, prove them out, expose them to enough people and iterate, and then pursue randomized controlled trials, and in some cases, FDA clearances, this takes literally years and millions of dollars, right? So it, you got to start early. It's 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 a long cycle to get these things built. Um, we've made as a as a category a lot of progress on you know the regulatory frameworks and pathways, and there are now more and more of these sort of real evidence based, uh, scientifically grounded products available on the market. However, what's not particularly solved very well is the business model. And so, you know, there's been news recently about, you know, prominent digital therapeutics companies running into trouble and even going bankrupt. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But one of the reasons at least is the, the fee-for-service model is not really ready for digital therapeutics. There's, it's, it's a little geeky and technical, but uh, the short version is it takes an act of Congress for Medicare and Medicaid to be allowed to pay for a new category of therapy. And there is no, there's nothing in the Social Security Act that covers a digital therapeutic. It didn't exist that long ago. And so they can't pay for it on a fee-for-service basis, like they pay for drugs or doctors or devices. Um, so we need another business model. And this is this is an area where behavior, you know, our DNA, my years at Humana, a number of our investors, folks like Senator Bill Frist and David Jones Jr., Larry Renfro at Optum Ventures, these are people that practically created value-based care at some level. We come at it with a, a lens of value-based care. And in a nutshell, that's the place where provider revenue streams are not dependent on how many services they provide, right? It's getting paid for outcomes. So if you're getting paid for outcomes and your revenue is, you know, there's different nuances and different models, but generally semi-fixed or fixed, now you have an incentive to deliver care in the cheapest, most scalable way possible. So that's where the economics of value-based care line up with digital therapeutics. So to the point of, you know, how we could leverage the power of the Accenture 
network and platform and client base and so on, where you have clients that are evolving into, and there, there's this progression in value-based care. You step from fee-for-service into a progression that, you know, upside sharing and downside sharing and partial risk and full risk and so on. You've got a bunch of providers and payers and payviders on that journey. We would love to help with how they address their member population or patient population dealing with mental and behavioral health care challenges. Well, Shivani, thank you so much for bringing uh, Aaron to the table here with with this discussion. I think we put to the forefront the whole idea of behavioral science and digital therapeutics uh, and value-based care, uh, which are all really great topics for us to be bringing into the C-suite of our clients around the world. So, Aaron, I want to thank you for the fireside chat here. Uh, I'm going to pass it back to Shivani, but uh, it was really informative and and really timely in many ways, both technologically timing, timely, but also just the awareness around we're all dealing with issues, our families are dealing with issues, and we need to address them with technology going forward. So, Shivani, back to you. Yeah, you know, folks, taking care of our mental health at times is just as important, if not more, right, than taking care of our physical health. And together, we can normalize conversations about our well-being and prioritize our mental uh, wellness. So thank you, Tom and Erin, for showing us how we can use emerging technology and the power of VR, of digital therapeutics, to help us do just that. Thank you again for this open, honest, and uh, really inspiring conversation. Thanks for the invitation. Great to be with you.